so yeah um hello everybody to and uh, welcome to Doomray. um it's our thursday recording it's the uh 9th of may um or as i put on the reception uh, the 9th of march which probably tells you more about me than than is necessary um so uh, very exciting today um we're in uh blitz games uh, in leamington spa the lovely leamington spa i should probably say um and i'm joined by steve stops hello um and steve stops is um a would producer be the correct term to use? Yeah, I guess so. My, my job title is project director, but yeah, I would guess my role is actually the role of a producer. Yeah. Okay, there we go. And uh, he's just worked on um, the latest game to come out of the studio called Paper Titans, which is uh, receiving critical acclaim, which is which is good to see. Um, you know, there are <laughs> you, yeah. you look shocked at that. Well, when you say critical acclaim, I think we, we seem to have created uh, Digital Marmite. We, oh, yeah. I think everyone seems to love the look of the game. That's yeah. been pretty much universally mm. well received. The gameplay itself seems to have split critics pretty much down the middle. For every great review we get, we get one that's bad. And we yeah. don't seem to hit any middle ground. There aren't lots of people going, it's average. People do seem to love it or hate it. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think I think critical acclaim, but kind of <laughs> disdain at the same time. Critical acclaim and disdain is probably yeah. something you should coin. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, you know, from from what I've read, I, you know, I will I will say there have there have been a few negative reviews, and and um, t- seems to be kind of based around the control scheme, which is which is um, and kind of gameplay elements that that people are uncertain on. Yeah, I think that people seem to have two particular niggles, and um, and I think. Both of them are, are really fair criticisms. It's 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 interesting when you read reviews because people, some people seem to rally against it. But actually, people are passing a personal judgment on their experience with the game, hmm. and you can never say that's wrong because that's the experience they had. Um, but yeah, I think the majority of people seem to be calling out the fact that there's not much difficulty in the game, hmm. and it's a really interesting thing because it was a deliberate decision on our part for pretty much the first fifteen levels of the game. The difficulty curve is very shallow. But we're very conscious of the fact that, particularly with our previous title, Kumo, we attracted a very casual audience to the game mm. because people fall in love with the art style and it's so pretty. And, and even though Kumo was, I would say, we considered it to be quite an easy game, there were lots of people saying, wow, this is a bit too hard for us. Mm. So what we wanted to do is have a really shallow learning curve that would get all players of all ages into the game so they could play the experience without it having any problems. Um, but that does mean that probably the first 20 minutes, 25 minutes of people's gameplay experience is quite slow-paced. And I think that is what's quite divisive with mm. people at the moment. It's clearly, casual players seem to love that and seem to respond really yeah. warmly to it. Hardcore players seem to want there to be more and, and more challenge to it, which, again, is a fair comment. But it's, it's interesting because I think you know that, that kind of um, brings up a, a debate that's, that's kind of wider in the gaming community at the minute, where... where I know in kind of the the mid the mid uh, stages of, of the last generation of console, there were people saying games are too easy, mm-hmm. um, and it, you know that and there seemed to be this kind of argument between kind of hardcore and casual. Yeah. And and hardcore gamer became kind of this badge of honour, where it used to be I'm a gamer, and people were like that's weird. <laughs> um, it, it became you know a lot more kind of socially acceptable, and I think. Um, because of these kind of new audiences, people people tried to um, you know tailor to them and, and make games for a new audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think often in that case, you know, what what does happen is people begin to kind of re- rebel against that. Um, and it's funny because you know, recently I, I was thinking um, uh, I, I did a, a thing for 
uh, Deanbury at the end of last year where I was looking back at the games of the year. And it was interesting because there was two games that I, I heralded as my favourite games of the year. Um, one was um, Dragon's Dogma and the other was, um, which is completely broken, but I love it. <laughs> and uh, the other was Journey. Um, and it's interesting because, um, you know, Dragon's Dogma came from kind of the Demon Souls, Dark Souls kind of background yep. um, and has this kind of horrible, horrific, punishing gameplay that itself has reward. And then the, um, you know, journey um, has, you know, no such thing as death. And it's interesting that, that to me, difficulty seems to create such a, such a kind of negative reaction from people. Um, when yeah. I don't feel it's that important. But. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of agree. And for us, we were always conscious of a lot of people when they play mobile games. Don't necessarily say, "I'm now going to sit down and I'm going to play a game for two hours." They're saying, "Oh, I'm waiting for my bus," or "Or there's nothing on TV for a couple of minutes," or "It's an ad break," or "I'm going to the toilet," or whatever it is. Yeah. And people just want something that's going to give them a nice distraction for a few minutes. And that's kind of the audience we made this game for. Mm-hmm. We made lots of deliberate decisions. We had the designers had some amazing ideas of having things. Um, anyone who's ever listened to any of our podcasts will know this because it come up a lot. But we had a character called the Eater. And effectively, the eater would eat stars, so it would give you a time-based challenge. If you didn't get your characters around the level fast enough, this eater would eat the stars. And it's a, it was a really nice mechanic. But we were thinking, well, if I'm sitting watching TV, and I look up from my screen, or someone calls me or speaks to me or something, mm. and I look down and all my stars are gone because an eater's running mm. and eaten it, then that's not really the game we wanted to create. We wanted to create this really soft, very, very casual game. And that's what we created. Mm. But I also get that people won't like that i'm kind of i i class myself as a hardcore casual gamer which is odd <laughs> but i'm kind of the same as you like my favorite game of all time is ikaruga mm. i love ikaruga it's punishingly difficult and punches you in the face but it's really short session and you just restart it's that kind of classic old school thing mm. where i play for a few seconds i'm dead again i'm now playing again now i'm dead again mm. and i love that but i also love the experiences like um like unfinished swan or journey and and those games that are are more about creating an experience with Mm. a player and something that something like journey is so memorable Mm. and i know um uh, yeah there are lots of other games that that are kind of softening difficulty in in, but want people to create an experience Mm. and i think for me personally where i'm not necessarily the most skilled gamer in the world Mm. i find nothing more frustrating than when i've paid my my 40 quid for a game Mm. And the game won't let me experience yeah. the whole game because I can't get past a certain yeah. bit. Yeah, I, I remember um, Arkham Asylum is a classic. I loved Arkham Asylum. Mm. It was one of those games I played a demo. I review a lot of games just yeah. be- for work, going through, looking at the mechanics, looking what makes them special. So I tend to play lots and lots of demos. And very occasionally a game will grab me enough to say, play me. Yeah. Arkham Asylum was one of those. And I've... Yeah, you play it and you feel like Batman. And you go, "Wow, this is amazing!" Yeah. I actually feel like Batman. All of the stealth stuff—it worked beautifully. I loved it. It wasn't without its flaws, but it was great. But then I got to one particular level where the mechanics and stuff just—I couldn't get to work properly, mostly because I guess my, my lack of skill. And I just got stuck, and then mm. couldn't complete the game, and kind of bashed my head against it for like twenty goes, and was like, "Okay, I'm done." And I, th- I think that that happens, you know. Um, <clears throat> like I, I would, I'd, I'd say, I'm maybe. 
less hardcore than I used to be, mainly through time constraints. Yeah. Um, and, you know, having having a real job and <laughs> not being a student. Um, but, um, yeah, no, I, I think, you know, it's so sad when, when you fall in love with a game. And it's happened to me, you know, many times before where I've fallen in love with a game and the difficulty spike has prevented me from experiencing it. And it's interesting that you're saying that you are that's actually a development decision and a design decision to yeah. to to um to accommodate you know for all skill levels and allow people to experience the game yeah and what so and we've taken that one step further because we knew we we knew if we just had a very flat structure at the whole game it would be boring yeah. and we're already getting feedback that they think that some people think that the slow ramp up we've got at the moment they're kind of getting bored before the game gets difficult mm. and and fortunately Fortunately, that doesn't seem to be the majority of players. It seems to be the more hardcore players. And I'll come to what we're looking at doing for those in, in a minute. But even when the game gets difficult, if people haven't played the game, the game's simple. You, you can complete a level by getting to the envelope. There's a little floating envelope, and you combine the abilities of your characters to get to the envelope. You get to the envelope, the level completes, you unlock the next level, and you can move on. And then we've got three stars dotted around the level that you can then use more skill and combine more abilities to collect the stars. Um, and from kind of level 15 onwards, the, that becomes more mentally challenging. Um, and there's one particular level in the back end of the game. I've actually had lots of emails from people saying, I'm stuck, how do I do this? Mm. So there is definitely difficult and challenge in the game. Um, but anyone, we've tried to design the game so most people could get to the envelope really quickly. So if you give the game to your kind of seven-year-old child... Your child's going to be able to get to the envelope, fold the next character, progress through the game, see the different islands, see the different vehicles and fly around and get the full experience. So mm. we always said we'd have a layer where we wouldn't stop people completing the game, but we'd try and make it more fun and interesting and challenging for them to get three starts. Mm. And that was that was a deliberate decision all the way from the beginning. And uh, that, I think, you know, that's it's it's interesting to because, you know, so often in um, in you know when when you hear people talking about about games they they say you know that decisions during the design process are heavily based around kind of gameplay or graphical limitations or, or technological limitations um and it, it's interesting that people don't well that people obviously are now beginning to think of of the user and how they their their experiences affected by those things yeah uh, and and almost um you know we we were talking just before we started recording about about the um, the idea of kind of downgrading, and I quite like this idea that um, I don't know it, it, if it's one of the reasons behind why I've I've become kind of quite a, an avid app gamer, is because there's something about a lot of um, app store based games that that remind me of the games that I used to play that, yeah. that had kind of simpler mechanics that, that that well maybe not simpler mechanics but but um, you know they were they were they had less of a reliance on kind of graphical uh, horsepower or you know those kind of things, and and they were more games. Um, um, yeah, I think there's uh, there's a freshness and vibrancy to a lot of the games you see on mm. the App Store, where what you're seeing is people just having fun making games. Yeah. And I think um, inevitably, because of the big budgets of a lot of console games, the the scope for having fun becomes much slimmer because the risks are so much higher. You know, if you if someone's paying you. 20 or 30 million dollars to make a game you, there's only so much creativity and risk you can take within that kind of um, high pressure environment 
whereas games on the App Store are made for significantly less than that. Mm. And you can feel that fun. Um, I don't know if you played Krabby Tron. Yeah. But Krabby Tron, for me, is a game that sums up the kind of fun of the App Store. They've got mm. um, that great little kind of pincer mechanic where you yeah. use multi-touch to pinch, and you can grab your own character, um, uh, Krab's eyes, and pull them and stretch them. And mm. they've just You can just feel the sense of fun yeah. that those guys have had. And that's kind of what we've always tried to keep in our team in the studio mm-hmm. uh, is that sense of fun the, the game that Paper Titans ended up being isn't the game we set out to make in the beginning mm-hmm. it's it's uh, um, a lot crazier we've had lots of feedback from people going wow this really is quite an odd game yeah. and it's because it's come from the team mm-hmm. none of the decisions have been forced down from the top no one's coming from outside the team saying it has to be like this it must be like this mm-hmm. and, and and games like this and Kumo Lumo and a lot of what you're seeing on the App Store, it's what happens when you free creative people and say, make something amazing. Yeah. And they will never cease to amaze you mm. quite how amazing they can make stuff. And, and I think it's it's a similar thing to, um, you know, what happened with the music industry in, um, you know, that it happens in kind of periods. Mm-hmm. But um, when when it becomes easier for you to reach your audience... Um, you, you do kind of start to get this kind of, um, you know, these very abstract games that just would not get made. I mean, the yeah. classic example for, for me of a game that was um, really quite obscure um, but became kind of this massive um, success was, was Thomas Was Alone, which yeah. was made by um, an ex-employee of... Um, yeah, of, Mike Bithell used to yeah. work here. Um, he, he created the first prototype uh, while he was here. And like you say, he, he's taken a really simple abstract idea and then polished it to an amazing degree mm. and and then spent about two years of his life running around <laughs> um, making sure everyone in the world played the game. Yeah. He's, done, he's done a great job. Both and tweeting once every three seconds. Yeah, is that, yeah that, that, that sounds about right. I think he, he was doing that while he was here as well. Um, but but that's, that's the thing. I think, um, yeah, you, you're seeing people make games like Thomas Was Alone and, and, and become really successful. It's one of the things that I love about the, the kind of that new new wave of indie mm. is because there are so many platforms they can now use to reach their audiences. There are so many great tools to get people who aren't programmers getting out and making games. I've got friends who are graphic designers who have made complete games that have got out. Like yeah. Mike Bithell was not a programmer; he was here as a, a designer. Yeah. He's got a natural flair for graphic design and art. Mm. Um, he he wanted, we had a, we every, we had an art competition for one of our company days, and we've got some amazingly talented artists in this mm. building you know we've got high-end concept artists some of the guys have gone on left here and, and now do concept work for films and do kind of like the uh, the map paintings and stuff for films we've got some amazing artists so they did this competition where anyone in the studio could make a piece of art and submit it mike bithell did one i think he came third so he, he always liked to say that i'm the third best artist in blitz <laughs> but he, he was he's got a good eye a good graphic design eye he worked with our in-house graphic designer and and i think that shows and i think you're seeing people who aren't approaching games as I'm a programmer or I'm a designer, mm. they, they become game makers. And that purity of division is what makes it interesting. And that's that's what we tried to embrace when we first started Team Lumo. Um, we, we wanted to look at, at what we could offer as a, a, a large independent studio in terms of our production values, our um, pipelines, and how quickly we could make stuff wanted to have that freedom and purity of vision that you associate with indie games mm. and how well we've achieved that i think we're still learning but but i think it's that's what we were looking for i think just 
trying to be a big de- another big developer mm. making another set of big titles isn't isn't interesting isn't pushing the medium well, I think it's it's interesting because I think you know one of the things that I admire about Blitz is is the idea that you have um, supported your your current team in in kind of enabling them to make these games yeah um, whereas you know there there are lots of studios um, you know that, that you know I mean I know EA is is a very kind of popular uh, company to bash but um, you know that I, I kind of think a lot of the time. It's really sad because you get these small teams of people that make really creative, beautiful things, and then they're they're kind of brought into a company and absorbed into a company, and then they disappear forever. Mm-hmm. And and the, the amazing thing about that is, you know, the examples of, of people like Rare, um, who are you know were probably the, the most um, creative studio. Um, you know, they, they were seen by many people as kind of pretenders to Nintendo's crown, but you know, cross platform and you know, but they're now making kind of Avatar games and stuff and. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's interesting that, that Blitz as a company has taken this structure of supporting its staff as opposed to just absorbing external companies and trying to absorb them into that kind of giant machine. Yeah, it's an, it's, it's an interesting one because I think I'm never going to knock any of the decisions that large companies are making at the moment because it's a really tough environment mm. to survive in. And we're not... It's an unusual period in the games industry mm. because we're not just on the cusp between consoles. We're on a cusp where the platforms are fracturing as well. Mm. You know, for the last few years, it's pretty much new console comes out. Oh, I go and buy the new Microsoft console or the new Sony console and the new mm. Nintendo console because that's where I'm going to then get my next generation of game experiences. But you're starting to now see, you know, you see the likes of XCOM being um, ported to iOS. Yeah. And people are like, Oh, so I am soon going to be able to get the experience I can get on my console on its mobile yeah. device. And don't get me wrong, I, I still believe that there's going to be um, a market for those big, hardcore experiences that exist on consoles and won't exist anywhere else. Mm. Um, and people will still do that. But it, it makes it a really difficult time for the larger um, developers and mm. publishers because no one's quite sure where the market's going. Mm. So a lot of people are making business decisions just to stay in business. Yeah, yeah. So I'm never going to knock what they're doing, but we're really lucky here because um, Blitz has had a diversified business structure for quite a while. Um, and we planned for this change in the market. We've changed our, our audiences. We're doing um, work for um, large-scale console work, so we're doing things like we did for Epic Mickey 2, mm. and we'll continue to do those kind of projects. We're also working with unusual partners like the Department of Defense in the States mm. and those kind of funded projects then give us the freedom to do um, a small number of own IP projects yeah. that we can then take those kind of creative risks mm. for and it's great because the way we cycle the staff around between teams it means we kind of keep all of those different things all feed into each other and then the IC on the cake is um, I think about a year or two ago we had a change in our contract that said that we can also do our own creative projects mm. outside of work so we've also got people who are making their own games in their own time. Yeah. And people are always doing that in game studios, but we're now contractually allowed to, yeah. and we can release them and do so with the company's support and backing. So I think that mix gives us a really good creative environment and quite a vibrant environment in which we're working on. So, yeah, we are really lucky. Mm. And I think, you know, like you say, I mean, because it, it's, you know, when I said that, that it's kind of fashionable to, to hate EA, and that what my kind of retort to that is is okay well we'll name me the last 
EA game you weren't on launch day buying. Um, yeah. And normally most gamers can't. <laughs> and, and also look at the quality of the work that they're yeah. doing on iOS and the diversity of their profile uh, portfolio on those platforms because um, Chilingo are owned by EA as well. Yeah. So they've got like the really small, fun, creative games that are being supported by small indie developers mm. at their bottom end right the way up to their Need for Speed and FIFA mm. and those style of games that are kind of, uh, again, bringing those console experiences onto mobile devices. So I think they've been really clever. Mm. And it's always easy to knock the guys at the top who are doing yeah. well and say they're not doing this, that, and the other. But like you say, we all enjoy the content yeah. they're creating. And I, I think it is, as well, it's, it, is, it is that kind of idea of, you know, that popu- with popularity it kind of breeds contempt, doesn't it? And, and I think, yeah. you know, they... Um, they are a huge studio and, and it's only kind of naturally going to happen. But, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that, that I was interested in is, you know, you were talking about the the um, the idea that they, they kind of play to the different ends of the app market. Um, and I was wondering if, if there's anybody kind of in in the app market specifically, just thinking because that's what, you know, what Paper Titans was made for, that, that you kind of really... Um, kind of herald as you know every everybody kind of looks to a studio or you know I, th- I think there are lots of studios for different reasons I, I don't think you could look to one studio so you look at Supercell and no one can do anything but admire what Supercell have done mm. with Clash of Clans mm. they've created a really great game with really st- strong monetization mm. and they're doing incredibly well from it mm. and again that was made by a small team i think five guys originally uh, made that game yeah. and yeah they would have had strong vc backing and stuff to get the game actually finalized and out to market mm. but it's that purity of vision that shines through and they didn't do anything that was massively groundbreaking they just had a really great strong central mechanic mm. and they just fixed a lot of the things that were putting people off of the kind of slightly more cynical zynga style games yeah. They had a, a slightly softer monetization loop, but still not so soft that people weren't yeah. funneled in to spend money. And I, I think you look at what those guys done, have done, and I think you can't not admire them. Mm. Our friends down the road uh, um, at Natural Motion, you, know, you look at games like CSR, and again, mm. it's really clever what they've done. Mm. Again, a very beautiful, very slick, polished experience, and, and you look at what they're doing. But then there are loads and loads of guys who are just making really innovative creative stuff and there's loads of stuff it's it's a shame in many ways because uh, there's lots of stuff that just disappears in the app store and there's mm-hmm. some amazing creative experiences yeah. um and so there are there are not studios so much as individuals or two or three guys in a bedroom yeah. making something that, that i'd admire it on on the same pegging as as as, as, as something else there's one game i can't remember the name of it off the top of my head it's a crazy game. I don't know if you've seen it. Black and white, really stark kind of black and white graffiti style visuals, where the girl on a skateboard, um, it like, and you jump up and there's all these little creatures in the sky. I can't remember. It's It was artfully style. described. But yeah, it was <laughs> I can't remember. It, it, it's gone. But I'm trying to look think. at stuff like that, mm. um, and and people doing um, um, really clever little puzzle games like Corpse Craft. I don't know if you've yeah. Corpse yeah, Craft. Yeah. But I love that. That's one mm. of the first games. I didn't just complete it. I kind of completed everything yeah. in that game went everywhere and it's just a really simple match three game mm. but with a really beautiful visual styling that kind of victoriana style yeah. so they were I, th- I think it's endless was it about 100 apps a, uh, games a day hit the app store and so with that amount of creativity hitting the store in one go you can't not be amazed by a lot of stuff that's been created yeah and i, and I think you know that's that's maybe you know one of the one of the problems is is that there's 
it, it has got to a saturation point and and it's really sad because um you know each week i end up playing games that you know a classic example is what you just said you know in the um if you if you described a console game i could probably tell you what the console game was straight away yeah whereas with, with the app store you do kind of find these weird and wonderful things i mean the game that um i'm playing at the minute and i'm reviewing for the for the show um this week is sorcery um which is interesting to me from a um you know for working in publishing mm-hmm. because it's taking um something that i'm involved in and mixing it with something i love and um you know again taking a, a format that was so popular um kind of 30, uh, 30 I, years I, ago well yeah to show my age yeah i love to fight fantasy books yeah I, yeah I read those religiously every time a new one came yeah. out and, and and i think right. you know that that goes to show that that there that the experiences that people um find kind of uh you know that re- they respond to now are, are so different to, to what you'd be allowed um but also you know what you'd what you'd risk to make on a console yeah. um because that you know that would never ever be released on a console yeah. and but but also yeah it's it, it's similar to i guess what you guys did with kumo lumo in that it's designed with not only the opportunities of the device in mind but also the constraints of the device in mind yeah yeah uh it's one of the things I think people forget is it, is the, it's not just coming up with a great idea. It's designing a game for the platform and for your audience. Mm-hmm. So the two come together. And it, like you say, said, uh, I don't know, there was a stat we were, we were looking for a bunch of stuff the other day. You know, I think in the entire life cycle of the Xbox 360, there were 400 games released. And there'll be more iOS games released this week. Yeah. than in the whole life cycle of the, the Xbox 360. Mm-hmm. So that's the amount of content that's being produced. Um, yeah, and it presents an interesting challenge for people. Um, I often hear people talk about the discoverability of their app, mm. and I think people think that the hard work is in creating a great game. Yeah. Actually, creating a great game is the fun and easy part of it. Yeah. The hard work's what happens at point your game's finished and goes out, yeah. and how you then build the word of mouth. Because mm. the, the most... The, the, the biggest driver of traffic towards your game is recommendations and word of mouth yeah. and it's how you get your game into enough people's hands mm. who like it so they can then tell their friends and get their friends playing it and do, you know do you, do you think that's where because obviously um alongside the game's launch um was a was a pretty comprehensive blog mm. um and uh, i know this is this is kind of a practice used by a lot of studios now where it's this idea of uh, controlled transparency where you can where you can kind of almost peek through the window of the studio. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think it's interesting because I, I remember the days of, you know, um, of kind of Ocarina of Time, where I remember seeing one piece of concept art that was released by the studio, and that was it for two and a half years. That was all I was mm-hmm. allowed to see. Um, and, you know, the speculation that came from it and, you know, and, you know, this kind of idea of um, developing anticipation um, before the games released has always always been kind of there you know, there's, there's always been the kind of advertising element but I think people um, taking ownership of, of a project from outside and you know constantly visiting a blog saying you know is there, is there, is there more concept art up is there um, mm-hmm. and you know I, I think you know do you think that's a kind of crucial part now of, of that app culture yeah I think so I, I think it's important for a number of reasons and I think there's a reason why it's important now more than before um because and we started touching on it earlier which is I think game development now isn't because of the way mobile games and online games work you can update game constantly mm. so you're not you're not 
you're no longer just sitting in a room making a game putting it in a box and it goes out as this pristine thing that will be the perfect game and if it's not it just fails mm. we actually can get into dialogue with our consumers and the reviewers so reviewers go your game doesn't have a great difficulty curve we can now go right well what can we do what can we, can we create some new hardcore levels mm. for the hardcore players who clearly want that stuff without disrupting the casual players mm. and i think building that dialogue early on with people and sh- saying we're here we're making this game let's know what you think get involved in the process is an important part of development um so we have early beaters of the game where we give game codes out to people so they can actually start to play the game before mm. it's out in the market and give us their feedback. Feedback We get users coming, we get people off the streets coming in very early in development mm. and playing even the earliest prototypes we have so we can get fe- thoughts and feedback from what people like and what they don't like. Mm. And that changes the game experience. We, we've, we have significantly changed key areas of the game based on that dialogue mm. with people from that stage. So I think that's one reason why the blog's important to start if, if you don't open that window and let people start looking in then they can't give you their thoughts and feedback and tell you what they like and don't like and I think it's interesting as well because if you know I'm just thinking from my experience of, of you know um, being involved in kind of better testing and stuff it's funny because <clears throat> if you if you um, if you do kind of if we continue the metaphor of opening the window um communities kind of rally behind a game and become very defensive of it and become advocates for you they become mm-hmm. you know your your tribe almost you know and they and they and they will defend you staunchly and i think it, it's it's interesting that you know the, this idea of um of kind of people taking ownership of a game before it's even released yeah. um but not just you know in terms of uh, of a product but in terms of of the idea of the game um but also, I, f- I find it interesting because you know you're you're saying that you're responding to those comments, mm-hmm. whereas I think the big problem that a lot of studios do is, is build this this community pre-launch, and then post-launch. I mean, I can think of so many apps that have after a couple of months one-star reviews because it's they're they're not getting the the kind of post-launch support that people expect from games now. Yeah, but again, that's kind of a challenging one because you'll often find that post-launch support dries up when the game stops selling. And ultimately, you know, we, we want to make great games. We want to make great artistic product that, that people can experience and get the same joy from that we did making it. And I think you know, if you could be joyful in creating a game, that joy shines through, hopefully, in the final product that, that goes out that people start playing. But the other side of it is that if people stop buying your game, then you don't have the resources to mm. continue supporting it. So you will. So we're always, part of our planning is say, right, we're going to support this game for three, four, six months, however long, mm. after launch. And that's built into our costings and our budgets and everything else that we need to do. But if, if after, say, three months, the game's simply not selling and people aren't buying it, then although there might be five people in the world who love your game and are loving mm. experience it, you financially just can't continue mm. supporting it. It just it, it, it becomes a point where your studio will end up just going bust because you're supporting a game that no one's playing. Yeah. So there has to come a line. But I absolutely agree with your point that if you start a dialogue, you need to actively engage. One of the things I find odd and frustrating is is when people open a dialogue but then won't don't want to listen. Mm. They'll go, but we think we're right anyway. We're, mm. we're fine. Yeah. Um, whereas we're not. We don't ever want to do that. So we still believe that our game loop is correct for the casual audience. Mm. 
and we're seeing the data from people playing the game that that seems to support that and we're seeing the feedback from people who like that 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 seems to support that so mm. we don't really want to change the central game loop but that doesn't mean that the people who are saying I want more challenge I want something harder aren't right so we're looking at having a second tier of like if you like a an extreme mode with a sets of levels yeah. as hard as we can possibly push the puzzles for the guys who really want yeah. that stuff so we'll patch that on as a second layer so it won't disrupt the experience for the casuals but will give the hardcore something that they want so it's kind of just trying to listen to all of your audience mm. and take all of their views and opinions into account mm. and work out what you think is the best way of of, of making the game that they clearly want mm. um, yeah and, and but, um, some of the reviewers uh, the guy from Kotaku and their review they had some amazing ideas that they'd love to see in our game mm. and we'd love to do that stuff but to do that we needed long term support of the game yeah. i.e. the revenue coming in so if we're talking about having levels where you have little trap doors that you can open and fires that will set fire to your character and mm. all of that stuff that, that would be a lovely evolution of the game mm. but all of that comes with the associated yeah. cost of production so yeah, yeah. it's always that fine balance um, yeah, yeah. Um, just going to finish up really on um, I, I could I've got so many qu- I've got about fifteen questions I haven't asked yet. But <laughs> <laughs> that's that's normally how they tend to go. Um, so I've just got a quick question from uh, one of our followers on Twitter, um, who's um, actually asked two questions through two tweets, but I'll combine them into one. Um, which is uh, where did the inspiration for the very uh, graphic bold uh, design of the characters come from? Um, and did did it change the process that you went through um, in designing the characters? Um, yeah, okay, they're, they're really good questions. So, the characters um, are created are born out of mostly a lot of iteration, mm. um, and the art style is kind of a collaboration, really. So we we've got um, we, we had a couple of great character concept artists on the team. So Bryn and Dunk, who were doing the early concepts, and so the designers start the process by saying these are the characters we had a, a cast of about 10 different character types we thought we might want at the beginning of the game so the ones that are in game so like the collector and the thrower and, mm. and the flyer and those guys and then some that weren't in game like the digger we spoke um, digger who dig holes the eater that we spoke about earlier mm. and, and um, like a little boat character that bobble along water so we kind of start with a big list of characters we picked a couple that we knew so the collector was always going to be in the game he'd be the guy who's going to collect stars so Brim would then start sketching um, initially just silhouettes so we know that every character has to be readable on a tiny screen Mm. and that has to be done not with colours or anything else it needs to be the silhouette it needs to be instantly recognisable that oh that's this guy this is that guy this is this guy Mm. so you can see who the characters are so he'd just do some outline silhouettes and did loads and loads like hundreds something like that of silhouettes and then we find some shapes that we thought worked well and then he would iterate and drive through those doing variations until we got a few that we really liked and once we got down to kind of a, a cast list of three silhouettes we liked then he would start arting them up and putting some textures on them and playing around with the textures and then while that process going on uh, nick williams was doing environmental concept art and he was going through working out what the environments would look like and he came up with some really kind of sparky different looks to them yeah. and then as those two things start to come together you can start to see the universe you're going to create mm. and then you start driving in that direction mm. kind of helming the whole thing um, Daryl Clulo is our uh, team art director 
and he he's been in games for years. Um, he also was has a movie background, but before that, his 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 origins are in fine art, and he's really really keen on making games that don't look like games. Yeah. So he works with those guys constantly, just mm. pushing their art direction. A lot of the early character designs and level designs we had were clearly from video games. Mm. And he would just keep pushing and pushing and pushing mm. until we could get it into something that's got a bit more creative edge and that kind of creative spark. And he'd constantly drive, drive the guys for like the next iteration, the next yeah. iteration, doing paint overs on the work to kind of force them out of just that get video game thinking. Mm. Um, yeah. So there was that side. Um, and yeah, did, once you start seeing the art direction come through, that will then inspire the designers of how mm. they want to make the game. So you end up with this kind of cyclical loop of... Mm. They get inspired by seeing some of the really cool environment and character artwork, and then the designers come up with some more ideas that then inspire the artists that then mm. go back round in the loop. And then kind of early on in that process, we've got our R&D team upstairs who we said, we want to make this papercraft environment. Mm. And said, but it's a hard thing because it's a, it's a low-poly game. Mm. But low-poly games are really easy to look cheap. If yeah. you don't nail it so it looks like paper, it just looks like a cheap low-poly game. Mm. But we weren't doing it to be low poly to be cheap. We were doing it because we wanted it to look like folded mm. paper. So we spent a lot of time with our R&D team trying to work out how we could get the right kind of specular maps and lighting mm. and shading and rendering so we could make it look like paper and, mm. and wanted to see how far we could push it on the platform. And the fact that our game runs on everything from a 3GS upwards yeah. um, and still looks beautiful on those mm. devices took a lot of R&D time to work out how we made that all render. So I like to think of this this kind of image of, of uh, you know, the, the classic kind of computer animator um, with with this kind of copy of Mayor or 3DS mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and a load of origami paper just crying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of <laughs> yeah, there's kind of some of that. Um, and, and like you'll see uh, on our environment artist desks and stuff, they'll actually, they we've actually got, paper versions of lots of the bits of our islands on the desk would actually be looking at how paper folds and what it does and how mm. it creases and, and the texture and if you really look around the environments you'll see like little unfolded tabs that aren't mm. stuck down and it's those little bits of attention to detail it's just yeah and I, th I think it's amazing as well because um you know <laughs> it's funny isn't it because it's it's that thing of it's like great lighting in films. Great lighting, you never notice. Yeah. And you know, when you think of paper, you think, well, surely that's quite a simple thing to. But people will know instantly if it doesn't feel right, if it doesn't, you know. If, and yeah. and it's uh, it's funny because there's you know it used to be kind of um, I, I remember water was always the big one, and then people started getting water right. And now with textures, it's funny that that as opposed to trying to kind of emulate. Um, natural textures. It's this emulation of man-made textures. Like I'm, I'm thinking of, um, you know, things like Little Big Planet, mm -hmm. where part of the immersion is is that it looks like it's made of cardboard. And I think yeah. you know one of the, one of the great things about Paper Titans is it looks like paper. Yeah. When, when we first started seeing um, the early renders of the game running, and people would say it, it looks like some like a child or someone's made this little paper universe mm. and then left it. And that's what we kind of always liked about mm. it is that feeling that it, someone's made this. Mm. Uh, we we knew when we started doing this, we wanted to make a game that was 3D. We're, uh, Kumo was great and fun. It was made by a really small group of us really quickly. But we, we can't really make those kind of games and compete with the bedroom developers because they mm. could do the same. You know, a bedroom developer could make 
Kumo Lumo. It, mm. wasn't, it wasn't something that's a natural fit for this studio. So we knew for this game we wanted to do something that was much more in keeping with the skill set we've got in the studio. We've got loads of amazing 3D artists. Mm. So we knew we wanted to do that, but we also knew we didn't want to do 3D in the current sense of it being grey and brown and you know all of the colours that people associate with console 3D. Mm. We wanted to keep that same vibrancy and joy that you see in, in a lot of the 2D isometric games you see yeah. so that's where um, yeah, where a lot of it was born out of mm. um, and that yeah, the big push from Daryl to it, for us to have a game that you could recognise as being an art game mm. rather than just here's a game environment that we just made for the sake of it yeah well that's um, that's that's probably going to have to conclude our interview, unfortunately. That's okay. Um, I've I could have talked for hours, and but just mainly, it's it's a wonderful game. It's very beautiful. Um, I I have I have kind of um, no criticisms in terms of uh, the artistic vision, and and you know maybe my only criticism was was kind of a similar thing in terms of the challenge. But then I. I hit the, the the peak and it started getting more difficult. And no, I, I really enjoy it. And I think it's um, it's it's a it's a kind of cacophony of of a lot of different games that I that I like and love. And um, it's to me, it really works. And congratulations to you and everybody on the team. Cause yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm incredibly proud of the team. Yeah, they've got every right to be to be feeling good about the game. I think they've done an incredible job. Um, so yeah, I can't wait to see what they turn out next. Okay. Well, Steve, thank you ever so much. That's okay. And, Absolute um, pleasure, Cole. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and uh, and we're probably handing over to Rob to say something uh, coarse and bitter now. So <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I'll leave that. 